Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. For listeners who have been tuning in regularly, you've probably noticed I've got this little spiel off the top where I'm asking people to go over to YouTube. I have a channel over there, Life As A, dot, dot. And basically, it's just highlights from the main audio versions, from the podcast versions of these talks that I have with these great guests. And the reason I'm plugging it so hard is that I think this content really does matter. And I want to get it in front of people. I want to get in front of youth, people that are still undecided, who just don't know what they want to do with their lives. And I think this platform, you know, One YouTube, offers that opportunity kind of get up close and personal with some of these guests in a different format. And if you're just not into audio, if you're not into podcasting as a whole, that's fine. That's okay. Well, you can still digest the content in a different way. I would encourage you, if you do know somebody who's looking for that career, looking for some ideas, direct them over to lifeasa.dot over on YouTube. You know, if they're into videos, they might just find what they're looking for over there. And while you are there, hey, I would always appreciate a like or subscribe. It's the best way to let that algorithm know that the content matters, that it should be put in front of others. Well, I do thank you for letting me ask this of you, but I think it's about time we get into today's episode. The last I checked, the world of entrepreneurship was strong, viable, and a completely realistic option to just about anyone living in the 21st century. I mean, of course, technology has a lot to do with this. As is this continuous change of modern society and culture, which churns out new opportunities for people to create businesses along the way. And yet, what defines successful ventures still kind of comes down to simple fundamentals like outdoing the competition, meticulous planning, and of course, I mean, execution, right? Well, on today's episode, I've got a guest lined up for you from the world of business who might just literally blow your socks off. She is one of those people who you just lean in a little bit more to listen to because you know what she's saying represents pure wisdom and goodness. Consider the fact that she started a company from nothing in a university dorm room with the stated goal of growing it into the largest of its kind in the world. And you know what? She actually did it. The company has offices in just about every corner of the world. And consider how she's been consistently ranked as one of Forbes' richest self-made women in the U.S. since that list's inception. You can even consider the fact that she wins awards and accolades quite regularly based on her past accomplishment and current philanthropic efforts. Yeah, she's a true powerhouse of entrepreneurial might and insight, and she's here to chat with us about it all, including her new book, which I might add, you really do have to pick up immediately after listening. So if you have any interest in starting a business or learning what it takes to run one effectively, lean in and listen hard. This episode will deliver. All right, all of this gushing aside, I think it's time to get going. So let me more formally introduce her to you. Liz Elting, founder and CEO of the Elizabeth Elting Foundation, is an entrepreneur, business leader, best-selling author, linguophile, philanthropist, feminist, and mother. After living, studying, and working in five countries across the globe, Liz founded TransPerfect out of a New York University dorm room in 1992 and served as co-CEO until 2018. Now, TransPerfect is the world's largest language solutions company with over $1.1 billion in revenue and offices in more than 100 cities worldwide. Accordingly, Liz has racked up awards and honors across her career, including but certainly not limited to the American Heart Association's 2022 Women Changing the World Award, the Alliance of Women Entrepreneurs 2021 Vertex Award for changing the face and direction of women's high-growth entrepreneurship, and the 2019 Charles Waldo Haskins Award for Business and Public Service from NYU's Stern School of Business. Recently, she picked up yet another accolade after being bestowed with the Gabriel's Angels Foundation's 2023 Angel of Hope Award. 
Liz has been recognized as a now woman of power and influence, and American Expresses and Entrepreneur Magazine's Woman of the Year and one of Forbes' richest self-made women every year since the Liz's inception. Finally, Elting is the best-selling author of Dream Big and Win, translating passion into purpose and creating a billion-dollar business. So with all this noted, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome you to my conversation with Liz Elting. Yeah, so it's an absolute honor to welcome you to the program. How are you doing today, Liz? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. How are you doing, Chris? Yeah, really good. A little bit early here in Japan, but this is my time. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Wow. And, uh, You're an early riser. Yeah. Well, it wasn't <laughs> too hard to get up for today's talk. I mean, I've been excited for this for quite some time. And with your book out right now, Dream Big and Win, you know, this is, this is one that I really enjoyed and I'm really eager to share it with listeners. Thank you so much. So appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I have this first segment lined up for us. It's called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners know, it's a segment where I just read off a definition of something related to what the guest is all about. And of course, surprise, surprise, I went with entrepreneur for you. So let me just read this definition off. And then after, I'll just ask your comments. Does that sound okay? Absolutely. That sounds perfect. Thank you. Great. Here we go. Entrepreneur. An entrepreneur is an individual who creates and or invests in one or more businesses bearing most of the risks and enjoying most of the rewards. The process of setting up a business is known as entrepreneurship. The entrepreneur is commonly seen as an innovator, a source of new ideas, goods, services, and businesses or procedures. Short and sweet, but uh, first take, what do you think of that? Yes, I, I think it's quite accurate. Absolutely. I think, you know, there are a lot of types of entrepreneurs, right? There are serial entrepreneurs. And then there's someone like me who really did one thing for a very long time, 26 years. But, you know, one of the things I like to say is don't confuse being an entrepreneur with being an inventor. You do not need to invent something entirely new to be wildly successful. and. Clearly, I didn't. In fact, you know, instead it was that I had experience in an industry, which I loved because it related to my passion. And I really had intense knowledge of that industry after three action-packed long years there, both in sales and production. And I saw a gap between what was needed and what was available in the industry. So when we started the company, there were 10,000 other translation companies out there at the time. Yeah. Crazy, right? And so I almost chose not to do it as a result because I thought, well, you know, I just had been working at one. Then there were a whole bunch of others that were tiny. It was, you know, very fragmented industry. And then I also knew of other people who were starting translation companies. So I thought, I got to do something different. But what I, what I talk about in my book is I had a very brief stint in finance, realized it was not for me, and thought, if I am going to start a translation company, I want it to be the biggest and the best. So we're going to do it differently and better. So the point comes back to what we're saying. You don't need to do something entirely new. You just need to do it differently and better. And the other piece of it is, I think you're continually innovating, whether you're a serial entrepreneur where... Clearly, you're coming up with new ideas and starting new businesses, or in my case, within our business, we had to keep pivoting and transitioning and changing with the times and coming up with new ideas based on what we felt our clients needed. So constant innovation is such a key part of being an entrepreneur and a business person, but certainly an entrepreneur. Yeah, I love that. And it's interesting. I mean, I've had several entrepreneurs on the program, nobody at your stature, I would say, but but all the same, like I read off this definition to them and each and every time people have a different twist on it all, which I find absolutely fascinating. And I really like the angle that you went with there. And a second point here that, you know, listeners of this program might know that, you know, I myself am based in Japan. So some of the people in my network, professional network, are translators. They've started their own companies, but whether or not they had these visions of going big or not, or just got squashed by the market and decided, no, just want to keep it small. You know, some people have these visions, but very few of them take it all the way. And and in reading your book, this was something that was important to you right from the get-go. You wanted a big company and you took it there. And I, I think that's what gets a lot of people, certainly, you know, the, the, the actual growth that you experienced and, and all that you achieved. And that's one of the big reasons, of course, really excited for this conversation, 
and some of the elements we're going to get into. I think culture was a big one. You spoke to some of those things, you know, within internally how you grew the company. But maybe we could shift on over into another segment here, a day in the life. And in reading your book, you know, I really like your straight to the point analysis of what it takes to grow a company. And business analysts will use words like dedication, perseverance, you know, goal setting and conversations when referencing entrepreneurs. But what I found in reading about you is that you truly embody this. I mean, you were living these things full tilt, you know, in terms of hours spent on the business, you know, sacrifices you were making along the way. I'd like to return to your early days of starting this company of TransPerfect and, and what it actually took in the startup phase of, you know, getting it off the ground and, and, and you know, getting some traction early on. I think it'd be great for listeners to hear this. Sure. Yes. And I think that's such an important point because I think the key to being successful a majorly successful entrepreneur, a wildly successful entrepreneur, isn't having some brilliant idea that is novel. As I said, it's more about the execution. It's more about going in there every day and giving it your all. And the discipline, you know, Warren Buffett has a wonderful quote that is in my book. I put it in my book, which is something like what differentiates wildly successful people and average people is simply discipline. And I think that's the point here. It's about going in. And one of the things I like to say is say it, set it, do it. Meaning say what your overall goal was. And in my case, it was to create the world's largest translation company. And you know, part of why I was in a position where we could do that is I wasn't a translator. I didn't have that high level of language knowledge and technical expertise that translators tend to have. So I needed to focus on what I could do. And I was a business person. So I figured we would get the talent and then be pioneers in the industry and add the business perspective on it. But what that was, was saying, okay, we're going to create the largest. And what does that mean? What is our revenue goal, our overall revenue goal? And then our annual revenue goal, and then monthly and daily, and then the actions that it took every day to make those numbers. And those actions were, in our case, and I talk about this in the book, 300 letters a day, 300 phone calls a day. And now, as I, I say, it might be 300 emails a day or 300 LinkedIn connections, whatever it is. But the point is coming up with the numbers to get you there and then making yourself do them every day and being tough on yourself, making yourself write 50 emails and send them out before you go on your coffee break. And then you know another 100 before you go to lunch and so on. And doing that with every, every day also as far as time. Be intense. Whatever your hours are, work intensely during that time. Don't get distracted and be tough on yourself. And the early days can be very grim. It's a lot of hard work. And I think that's what you were talking about. And you know, one of the things I like to say, and I think it's what I tried to do, was work today like no one else will, so you can live and give tomorrow like no one else can. And you know, the idea is not to be miserable every day, but it's to be disciplined in the ways I was just describing. So during the business day, work intensely, make those goals. And then, of course, at a certain time, whatever it is, if your hours are, for example, 8.30 in the morning to 6 at night, at 6 at night, if that's your time, shut down and then spend time with your family or whatever extracurricular activities you want to do because you need that for a sound mind. But I think it's about that. And it's about doing that over a sustained period of time. It's so easy to get distracted in this day and age with social media. And it's about not letting yourself just saying, what is my priority? This is my priority. And I'm going to be almost addicted to it in, in a healthy way, in the way I'm describing. And, you know, going to sleep at night thinking, okay, how can I grow this company and waking up in the morning, how can I grow this company? And then making sure you do what needs to be done to make it happen. So those are kind of the philosophies behind it. Yeah, I love that. I think that's really helpful. I mean, a lot of times I think young people in particular, like they, they see ultra successful people like yourself and they assume that, you know, this is certain inherent gifts that these people have been, you know, bestowed, you know, whether it's vision, skill, intuition, all these different things. But the reality is, it's just what you just explained. You know, it comes down to that determination and that willingness to put in that extra work and kind of set aside the things that, 
you know are going to get in your way, you know, whether it's a smartphone these days or Netflix or something of that nature, you know, it's having that laser like focus continuously, not for one day of the week, three days a week, it's five days a week. Like that is your goal. And having those set targets, like you were just referencing 300 calls or emails, whatever it might be, clear ideas of what you need to achieve. So those are things like when you decided that you were going to start this company, you had those, those numbers written down essentially, at least initially. Yeah. You know, I didn't do a business plan because I mean, the truth of the matter is started the company with no money whatsoever. I mean, a few thousand dollars, my life savings from every job I had ever had. And, and then my business partner had $90,000 in grad school debt. So we really were in the red. So yes, we didn't spend the time on a business plan. We also did not spend the time getting, working on getting funding because I felt that it was about revenue. It was about sales all day long because even, first of all, I didn't want to take the time trying to get funding and we had rent to pay. We had bills to pay. So we didn't have a choice that can take a long time. And then even if you get that, of course, you still need the revenue. So I felt the time would be better spent getting the revenue. So yes, put down my goals on paper. I do think that helps to put them on paper. And then some people, one of my mentors says it's actually great to share them with other people because then you're even more committed to them. And I understand that. And I I do that in many cases. So yes, we did that. And I think that was very valuable. And then as we brought on people, we expected the same thing of them. And they needed to provide us with end of day reports to to show us that they were actually doing those things. And I think we were, you know, we were ended up being known in the industry for that, but it paid off. It worked and people understood it. That was the way they were going to grow their part of the business. And then when you get into hiring people, it's hiring people to be entrepreneurs within your company, intrapreneurs, where they're starting perhaps alone in one office. They have certain goals. And as they make their goals, they get to grow their team. And it's as if they're running their business, their own business within your company. And from a prestige standpoint, you know, title standpoint, and also a financial standpoint. So that works very well. Mm. Yeah, there's a couple of points I want to uh, touch upon, but maybe in a few moments here. This other question really quickly as well. I think it's clear to see for people right now and just listening to this conversation or watching or people who have read your book, it's this grit, determination. It comes across. It definitely comes across. And I can see how like, you know, when you're young, you're hungry as well, and you're really, really going for it in those early days. You know, this this is an element of entrepreneurship that's absolutely critical. Some might lump it all, all those things I just mentioned into passion, you know, but semantics aside, this is a critical element. Would you say that that was something that you had right out of the gate? Like even in your youth, you were just like a, a person who was determined, like, this is my goal. This is what I want. Or was this something that evolved over time and refined? What would you say to that? I always got a little obsessed with whatever I was doing. I did. And I started working very young at age 10. And that's how I was brought up. My parents told me, you know, you need to not be dependent on anyone but yourself. You need to be financially independent. So I started having jobs. My first job was when I was 10 years old. I was walking a child to school. He was seven. I was 10. I was in fifth grade. He was in second grade. So had jobs all along the way. And, you know, I would get up at, at, you know, six in the morning before school and deliver newspapers, that kind of thing. So lots of jobs. And I was disciplined about that. And I had, I was able to develop a work ethic. And I, I owe it a lot to my parents who basically said, you know, you need to do this. And when I turned 16, I, I was responsible for paying for my clothes and my entertainment. So I, I really needed to make money. And so I got in the habit. And I also loved working. I think I felt like I was always learning something. I was meeting people. I enjoyed making money so that I could then take care of my needs. I mean, I liked it for a lot of reasons. So I think I was always a little obsessive about whatever I was doing, but in a good way. I, I mean, I we like to believe we're not crazy. <laughs> I guess we are. I, now that I've said that, I think entrepreneurs who really commit to it and put other things aside are a little crazy in that way. And, <laughs> you, you know, I need I, to I be though. I, yeah. yeah. You have to yeah. be because it takes a lot of discipline. For example, when I was in grad school, or right after I graduated, got my MBA, and this is when I started TransPerfect, I had friends who had just you know, gotten their degrees with me, and they were going out for drinks after work, or they were going to the Hamptons. That's what, of course, here in New York, that's what people did. And 
I couldn't go with them. I mean, I had to work, you know, I was working at night. I was working on weekends. I had to make sure we brought in the revenue because that was how I was going to live. So I think I did always have it. And, um, you know, as far as feeling like you're missing out, I think what happens is, and I think this is key when you're starting your company, you think, okay, it's going to be crazy for a few years. And that's what I used to say to myself, maybe 80, 100, 120 hours a week for a few years. But I think this is important. But then it will get better and it does get better. And I think that's really important because if I don't say that, people might think, oh my God, how can you do that for 26 years? Who would want to? And I agree. And that's why I'm a big fan of doing it or for people doing it when they're right out of school, when they're in their 20s, before they're married, before they have kids, so they can throw themselves into it. And then maybe they do that for a few years and then they've set up their company so that their hours are much more manageable because they're relying on other people as well. It doesn't mean they can slack off. I mean, you can't. Of course, as the leader, you need to be a role model. But by the same token, it's, you know, I think the concept is work for a few years like no one else will. And then you can have a situation that many don't have is there. So I think that's very important. But it, it works. It works. And and I guess that's what I'd say about that issue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a really important message, again, for youth, you know, listeners of this program. I think it's just insightful for them to hear what it truly takes, you know? Like, I think it, it, it's so easy for, for young people to latch on to, you know, the, the, the end product. This is what the lifestyle is, and this is the company that the leader has built and grown. But it's those early days and those lessons and that sacrifice and commitment along the way which amounted to yes. this end, you know? Oh, and I think, and another little anecdote related to that, this, and I talk about this in the book, is part of how we got Goldman Sachs as our bit, first big financial client. That was a client that, of course, we wanted. And they called us up, and it was a couple of days before Christmas. And they said, okay, we have all this work that needs to be done in our office. And, you know, can you come in now or tomorrow? It was, I think it was tomorrow, which was, yeah, Christmas Eve, and just stay until it's done. And not too many people want to do that, right? <laughs> On December 24th for a few yeah. days until it's done. And we had plans with my family, but we ended up just saying, okay, Goldman Sachs is calling, we're going. And showing up when no one else will is critical. And then after that, we were able to have Goldman Sachs as a multi-million dollar client. But had we not done that, had we not shown up when others wouldn't, that we never would have been able to make that happen. And I think that's just a really important lesson. You know, if you have too many rules at the beginning, you're not going to build those loyal clients. And in the early days, you need those loyal clients. And they may start with a small project. That happened to us on a number of our biggest, biggest clients. They started with a one or two page project. We did it and we gave it everything we had. And it was a test. And from that, that developed into multiple projects and that developed into multi-million dollar relationships. So I think that's a super important lesson to spoil the client with quality and service and make sure you will do what others won't do. Because, you know, when there are thousands of companies doing what you're doing, you have to offer something different, but then they become loyal clients. They become raving fans. And then you get repeat business and referrals from them for life. And that's how you grow the company exponentially. Love it. Yeah, absolutely love it. Well, maybe we could shift over into this other segment of Q&A discovery and kind of continue this back and forth. And this is a question that I had, and you've already spoken lightly about it in terms of the, the company. Once it was off the ground and it was established to a certain degree, you grew it beyond just, you know, translation services. You grew it in a bunch of other different ways. And how you did this was part of your culture internally, this entrepreneurial mindset you'd already mentioned. I think that'd be really useful for for listeners to hear a little bit more about that, you know, in terms of like, I understood that to progress within your company, people had to bring forth new ideas, you know, new innovative ideas that would be recognized and used potentially. I'm assuming that was part of your growth strategy for TransPerfect itself? You know, when we were in the dorm room, just getting the company off the ground, we didn't know that that was going to be the strategy, but that's exactly what happened. And what was really interesting is I initially joined groups like Young Entrepreneurs Organization and then later Young Presidents Organization, but I learned people would rely on their boards for a lot of the ideas. And we didn't have a board, which 
you know, in retrospect had some negatives too, but putting that aside, I thought as I was talking to the people at YEO and YPO, where are my ideas coming from? And certainly my partner and I had some ideas, but then was realizing it was our people. It was our, it was our senior people who were throwing out ideas based on what they were seeing within the company, what their clients were saying. And then over time, it was all our people at all levels. And, you know, some of them came to us and a lot of them, we kind of reached out to our people to, to get. And I mean, whether it was our TransPerfect Linguist certification, I remember that was the idea of one of our employees. She came to me and she said, there is no gold standard for certification in this industry. And why don't we create it? And we can then give it to every one of our translators. We can also offer it as a service to clients. So that's just you know one example. But that just came to me from one of our people. Another was when we started TransPerfect Litigation Support Services. One of our salespeople said, we're working on these big cases for litigation. Why don't we do more than just the translation? Why don't we do what needs to happen before the translation and after, like copying, scanning, coding? Again, brought to us by one of our people. And so, and we became ISO certified at one of our production offices. That was the idea of another one of our people and so on. And, and how we got these ideas, and this is the important thing, we had innovation contests and that was fun because then we got all kinds of ideas and some of them we took and some we didn't. And then what I talk about in the book is the one-on-one meetings that I am such a fan of with employees who reported to me and sometimes were a couple levels away from reporting to me. But I got some of my best ideas through those meetings. Our company got some of its best ideas. And sometimes they were just ideas that you know affected the employees, like you know, things like, okay, why is there a, a coffee maker on the 40th floor and not the, or an espresso maker on the 40th floor and not the 39th yeah. floor? That's an easy one. But if it upsets employees, you know, let's solve it. We did. And then, so it was through those meetings, also employee surveys, big fan of those, and then exit interviews. And a lot of companies don't do them, but I, I was a stickler about them and I was always chasing after HR to get them. And one-on-one meetings, employee surveys, and exit interviews. And I think one very important point with all of those is you get the feedback from employees. And my favorite question was always, what would you do differently if you owned the company? And that's how we got some of our best ideas. But then the last thing I'll say with respect to all of this is, if you do this and when you do this, make sure you use all this great information. Because you know people are saying, okay, let's do another survey. It's like, wait, we've got to be careful. Whatever information we're getting, we're looking at every single idea and every single bit of feedback and we're either using it or we're not. And we're getting back to the employees on why. Because as we know, employees can't stand it when they're asked questions, they're asked what's wrong, they're asked what they would do differently, they say, and then nothing happens, right? And it's one thing if you don't like their ideas, but at least carefully assessed and take action, either doing it, yes, they're not doing it, letting them know within every single case. I think that's super important. Because otherwise, you're just wasting time getting information. You're wasting your time and the employees are, employees are unhappy. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's really, really great insight there. Because a lot of times, the assumption might be that as a leader, you're, you're focusing outwardly. You know, where's yeah. the, the industry going? How is it developing? You know, what, what areas can we exploit? Where can we move into? But the truth of it is, like a lot of that power and, and growth comes from within you know, and paying attention to those elements, right? And, and listening to the employees. And then like, I think that's, at least for me, that sometimes when I, you know, read books on entrepreneurship, there's usually, a, you know, a chapter or so on culture. But I think sometimes it get pushed to the wayside a little bit, you know, as opposed to some but other areas does. of entrepreneurship. But no, it, it's another, absolutely critical. I mean, like, with, for all that you just key. explained. No, it's so key. And I, one of the things that I learned, I learned a lot of things, but When I started the company, the idea was to differentiate ourselves by spoiling the client with service and quality. And we did. And I think we did as good a job of that as anyone in the industry. We certainly tried. But then, of course, what I learned was you really have to spoil the employees and then, and you set things up right. And and then they will spoil the client with service and quality and the rest will take care of itself, the revenue and the profit. So 
And I guess that's how it works. When you're a startup entrepreneur, you're dealing with all the clients, so you're spoiling them. Then you start adding people. Your people are dealing with the clients, and then you need to spoil those employees first and foremost. And of course, the clients along the way, but it starts with the employees. And one of my goals, and this happened in the final kind of 15, 20 years, I really focused on becoming an employer of choice in our industry and ideally any industry. That was one of my big goals because, you know, of course that relates to exactly what we're talking about and having the best culture out there. I've got this other question here as well. One other thing that uh, that you spoke about already was this notion of goal setting. And, uh, you know, I think this is a really critical one and I want to return to this point and really emphasize it for listeners. You know, we spoke about passion. That's certainly an important element to growing a business, but again, goal setting. And you have this approach that you really adhere to, one that's out there. A lot of people know about this already, but it's called SMART. You could break that down for us really quickly. Sure. So SMART is the acronym for Specific, Measurable, Achievable, Relevant, and Time-Bound. So I guess, you know, with every goal, it just involves making sure it's a very specific goal. Like, for example, what we did an example of something we did was I thought, okay, if we're going to be entrepreneurs and build the largest company, we need to act as though we have a boss and we're going to open a hundred offices. So we're going to do for a year, every year for the next, however many years it was. I mean, it, we ended up doing them a little faster after a period of time, but in the initial couple of years, basically we'd say, okay, one per quarter. And I remember literally putting down on paper, okay, first quarter, San Francisco, second quarter, Atlanta, third quarter, Washington, DC, fourth quarter, Chicago, and so on. So very specific. And that's obviously very measurable because you either open it or you don't. And by opening it, what we meant was hiring a person and putting them in an executive suite. That's what we did back then. I I suppose now they're likely to be working remotely because it's just a one-person sales office initially. Then, so specific, measurable, achievable. Certainly it was achievable. And partly why something like that would be is it was just the cost of one person. It wasn't spending a lot of money that we didn't have. Relevant. It was relevant to accomplishing our overall goal of becoming the world's largest translations company with an office in every major city around the world. And then time-bound. Of course, it was time-bound. It had to happen each quarter. So again, SMART meaning specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time-bound. That's an example. But doing that with so many different things throughout the course of the business, I think, is key to achieving your overall goal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've read at times like, it's even good just to, to put these like really ambitious goals down, right? Like having the biggest company you know, within the translation space in the world and then breaking it down from there. Okay, how are we going to do that? Well, as you just mentioned, an office in this city, in this city, in this city, and you kind of break it down from the top, kind of see it that way. And allowing yourself to, 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 to fully embody that for one, and then also I'm sure at different points along the way, you're going to have to change this plan. You know, and if the results aren't coming, that's a kind of a sign that, well, you know, maybe the strategy is a little bit off here. I imagine that was something that probably played into this as well. Yes. And and with the example I gave of opening offices, and this happened particularly when we tried to open international offices, it could be harder to find the right person. And the person in the office was key. So if we were not able to find them fast enough, we would say, okay, we can't do it. We can't achieve this goal. So what we will do is we will add an extra person in this office we already have to make sure the revenue goal gets addressed through that other office. And then we just would have an extra person to get for that next quarter or an extra office to, to you know, open in that next quarter. But yes, you have to be flexible, but they relate to the overall goal, which, you know, becoming the largest company and with this amount of revenue. Yes, exactly. With this other question as well, relating to the life element, and again, this is something you spoke about already to a certain degree. And I think nowadays there's a lot of competing information out there in terms of what it truly takes to build a company. Like you said earlier, like your recommendation is to go at it hard in your youth. When you have time, you don't have these commitments, maybe family or otherwise. But at the same time, again, I think people can get tripped up on this. And just myself, when I was researching for this, I went online, you know, life balance, entrepreneurial balance. And got a few competing you know, viewpoints. One was from 
Reed Hoffman, the founder of LinkedIn. And I'm just going to read off what he has to say about this, this notion of entrepreneurial balance. And then I have one from someone else. But first off, here's Reed Hoffman and what he has to say. He states that founders have no balance. He goes on to say that if he hears a founder stating that they have a balanced life, he firmly believes that person is not committed to winning. And then on the other hand, we have tech advisor, investor, famed author, Tim Ferriss. And he notes that at one point in his business journey, he was doing better than ever financially speaking. His company had operations in over 12 countries. However, he was on the verge of meltdown. His girlfriend left him for workaholism, and he realized he had to either restructure or shut it down as it was killing him. So here we have two well-respected individuals, two different opinions on it. In reading your book, I have a hunch of where you stand on this, but all the same, I'd love to hear your insights on this. Yeah. And I understand. And I understand both points of view because you're doing it for 26 years. You're in both places all the time. And, you know, I felt like I needed to be obsessed. I needed to be all over it. I need, I couldn't take a break, but I also found when I was in that situation, I had to step back and take a break. And in the early days, you know, when I was just working crazy hours with no commitments other than myself, <laughs> no spouse, no kids, when it was too much, I just had to go for a walk. I just had to take a break. I just had to get myself out of there or or take a few hour break. So yes, I think that's important. But I think the other important point is, I think you need to be more intense and work more hours, as I said earlier, in the early years. And then you can because you have more people and you have people in different time zones who can cover for each other 24-7, if need be, or at least during five days a week. I mean, if you don't want to have people work on weekends. But the point is, I think you have to go all in. You know, one of the things I say is focus, focus. You know, if you focus intensely and you work hard, it's like magic, but it takes a long time. But by the same token, no one can live that way and no one should live that way because at a certain point, it's not worth it. I mean, wh whether you build a, a $10 million company or a billion dollar company, what's the difference? Or even if you build, whether you build a, a million dollar company or a hundred million dollar, uh, you know, I mean, I'm all over the place, but you know, the point is you need your happiness, you need your well being. So, I think the answer is in the early years, you have to go all in. You need to be super intense. You need to work extreme hours and take the break so you don't you know, get too burnt out. But then after a few years, if you've set it right upright and you've worked on the business rather than in the business and you've been tough on yourself in the early years and successful enough, you then can rely on other people to cover for you. And then you can have your, your, your spouse, your family, your work-life balance, you know, your other interests. And I think you need to, because I couldn't have done it that intensely for 26 years. I mean, it was probably crazy. The first, I mean, for me personally, the first maybe five to seven years, it was beyond intense, but then it got so much better and more reasonable. And it's about, you know, working in the business or on the business rather than in the business so that you have other people you can rely on to cover for you and to do very important pieces of work. So sorry, that's a long answer, but I think that's the key because I understand the issue. And I say you have to be addicted, but addicted, not meaning you're working 24 seven, but you're thinking about it all the time and you're setting it up so that uh, the clients are taken care of. See, I think that's really key when I say relying on other people. And we were big proponents of that. I mean, we told clients we were there for them whenever they needed us, but we had a lot of people covering, you know, as I said, in other time zones and backups in the same time zone and that type of thing. So I think that's the key. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. It's a, the, the nuanced look at it all, you know, almost a stage sort of development of the company. Yeah. You said early on, you go hard, but then as you progress, you start to shift your ideology a little bit. You know, you have others that are taking on some of these tasks right. that allows you to free up some of your time to, to focus on yourself a little bit more. Absolutely. And, and it doesn't mean then they're working a hundred or 120 hours a week. I mean, we figured out from a lot of burnt out employees, because we had employees who worked too hard too, that we needed to set up shifts. And in production, we set up three different shifts. And then as, then as I keep saying, we had people in other time zones covering for people and then we also gave comp days 
So yes, you can't do that to your people where they're working the crazy hours you were. You can't do that. But after you've worn all hats in the early years, you then, if you've done it right, and if you have some good fortune, you then can work more normal hours and your employees can too. I think that's that's the goal. And I think that can work. I got this last question in this segment here, and it's this compelling passage I came across within your book. And I'm just going to read that off for you and, uh, and get your comments after. No matter where you are in your professional or personal development, there's always someone out there who can motivate you to do more and be more. You just must be open to finding them. I really like that for a lot of different reasons, but uh, what would you say to that? What's the sentiment behind that? I just think it's important no matter what, like if you're frustrated because you're not valued or you have the wrong boss, there's someone in your company, you can find me. Perhaps you can change positions, change departments. And if not, you know, you you go and you leave and you start your own thing by with someone else, perhaps that you found that has nothing to do with that company. Or if you're further along and you're doing well, you might feel like, okay, but what next? I'm complacent. And you might find someone who inspires you to do something new. Or if you feel like you're at the top, but you're just making money and you're not, you're not feeling fulfilled. You're not feeling inspired. You know, I I think you, you might meet someone who, who needs help and you can give back to them and that can inspire you. So I think it can mean a lot of different things. I mean, what did it mean to you? Yeah. It's interesting you ask that because like the way you explain it, it makes perfect sense to me now. But for me, it was like hope. You know, there, there, there's times of challenge along the way and you might need that helping hand or guidance, someone to pull you out of a situation or a mindset. And that, 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 that option is out there. You just have to be open to finding that person and listening, you know, listening to advice that might be contrarian, you know, to what you currently believe or, or otherwise. And yeah, yeah, I think hope, hope for me at least is how I took that. And there's always hope because I saw people at my company. And and I had some time at my company where I had kind of lost hope. And then the the right solution came along. And we see that all the time when things are going wrong and we feel like we're in the worst situation. We're like, oh God, I'm I'm at the bottom. Why is this happening to me? Of course, at that moment that that door closes, the door to something new opens that's so much better. And and it led you there. Yeah, exactly. And it, it can be that individual. It could be yourself who find your way out of it. But oftentimes, like, I think it's probably, you know, a person, a person who gives you some advice or just says something that just triggers a different thought or a different idea. But the point is, you have to have that open mindset towards listening to others. Again, things that might be, you know, flying against what your your normal way of thinking is is all about or, or, or you know, the direction it's going. So yeah, I really like that. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember, and, and I will say, you know, as an entrepreneur, sometimes, you know, people say things like it's lonely at the top, right? As a, a leader in a company. And on the one hand, I felt like I had amazing employees who were so supportive and they were like friends and family. But then, yeah, I mean, the point is you you want to keep meeting people. You want to keep talking to people because you never know who that person is going to be, who is going to inspire you to do something new or different. Well, we are running the bend into this last segment, a crystal ball segment. And as the name implies, we're looking at the future trends, predictions, so on and so forth. And, you know, in, in terms of, you know, your journey, we've touched upon several different aspects of it. And, uh, you know, at one point, I think it was 2018, you actually sold your shares within TransPerfect, 440 million US dollars. And that's really allowed you to attack some societal deficiencies that we have. And I know some of them, you know, you're, you're quite open about them in terms of promoting women, advancing their opportunities within the workforce, you know, racial minorities and whatnot. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you've been doing since your trans perfect days. Cause I think this is the other element, the other really inspiring element of who Liz Elting is and what she's come to be. Thank you. No, I appreciate that because yeah, I mean, 26 years at trans perfect, that was a long time. That's your identity, you know, like for, for a long time. And I think it'd be easy for a lot of people to just be like, okay, that's it. That's it. And then, you know, but it's you've, a weird you've transformed feeling. yourself in a lot yeah. of different ways. Yeah, I, I've certainly tried because you leave and all of a sudden it's like, what is my identity? And I know entrepreneurs feel that all the time when they sell their companies. And, oh yeah, I felt that way. And I was heartbroken just because I thought this is my identity. This is my baby. This is my passion. But 
I quickly saw that it gave me an opportunity, a huge opportunity to do all the things that I had never had time to do. I mean, initially, I, my my boys, I have two kids and they were in ninth and 11th grade. And I thought, oh, good. I get to spend a little time with my my kids during these yeah. years. I mean, that was initially. So I visited colleges with my older one and went to a lot of ballparks. They're both big baseball fans. And so I took that much needed maternity leave that I never was able to take. That was a nice thing. Just personally, that was a nice thing. But I also saw that I was a lucky one of the lucky ones. And how lucky was I to have had a passion and been able to pursue it and make a good amount of money doing it and not have to worry about my future and how I was going to pay my bills. So I thought there are a lot of people that are born in the wrong zip code or the wrong race or religion or whatever, walk of life. And they have not been able to get an education or they haven't had the right role models around them, or they've been discriminated against, or all of those things. And that applies to women, and that applies to other, you know, (laughs) non-women, you know, men. So I wanted to help those people out. I mean, and the other thing is I found, even in my years in business, I saw discrimination. I mean, I felt it sometimes against me, and other women, and other people. So it was my chance to give back. And so that's why I'm doing, and I really believe, you know, as I said earlier, the world should be equal. I I mean, people should be treated equally and fairly. And I believe to whom much is given, much is expected. I feel like that's what I want to dedicate the rest of my life to, giving back in different ways. And whether through education or supporting scholarships or entrepreneurs or helping with public health, like heart disease, cancer, gun safety, hunger, and the list goes on. And there are a lot of causes that I'm involved in, but they all relate to people being given a fighting chance to live their best life, live a long and healthy life, and achieve their dreams. So that's what I'm doing now. And I'm finding it so rewarding. And I'm learning a lot. And I'm meeting amazing people. And so it's been incredibly gratifying. Mm, yeah, yeah. I really like that. I can see it. I can see how that would be. You know, how could it not be, really? Quite frankly, like, how could it not be when you're seeing some of the impact that your efforts, you know, are, are creating for others, you know, changing lives? Like, this, this is no small matter here, obviously, you know, like you, you really can derive a lot of satisfaction in seeing the impact. Again, I guess that's the right word for it here. Now, one other quick question too, in terms of like when you're encountering women in say within the workplace or within entrepreneurship who are maybe suffering from some of these like old archaic views on a woman's place within these realms, what what advice do you give them? What do you say? Yeah, well, and I talk about this in my book. I was encountering that situation in my first job right out of business school. I was the only woman there. And uh, as soon as they saw that whenever the phone rang, they'd be yelling, Liz, phone. And then they, when I said, okay, I'm just going to work harder than everyone else. And uh, I tried that and got my work done early, then went to my boss and I said, what else can I do? I'm finished my work. And he said, well, you can go around to the guys and ask them what supplies they need. So anyway, what I did, and this is what I recommend. I mean, first, if you, if you enjoy the company and the work you're doing, kind of speak up and say, this is not right. This is unreasonable. This is not fair. And I don't want to be treated this way. And if it's a bigger company, perhaps you can be moved to a different area. Uh, If it's an issue related to pay, which I know happens to a lot of women, it's asking for what you deserve, uh, your boss, HR, whoever is appropriate, but basically speaking up and letting them know you are not, you know, comfortable with that and, and saying it in a kind, respectful way, but letting them know that You value yourself and you would like the company to value you more and you can provide a lot to the company and you just expect to be treated respectfully and equally. So if the company won't give you what you want, and in my case, they weren't going to, and part of it is I realized I was in the wrong industry, then what I would say is go either find a new job. That's what some people do. In my case, though, I thought I have an idea on something I can do. So if I don't like the environment I'm in, I'm going to go create my own. And, you know, I love the way so many women and men are 
pursuing entrepreneurship now and starting their own companies where they're creating the culture they want. And I'm a big believer in that. And, you know, that's why it doesn't have to be the biggest company in the world. It just has to be the right company. And I'm a big believer. I think it's a wonderful time for people to be entrepreneurs. It's, you know, with the internet, it's so easy to get started as far as, you know, all the kind of free marketing you can do on social media, getting a website up quickly for a moderate amount of money. And then, you know, you're and being able to work from home, not having to pay for the overhead of an office. I mean, there are a lot of reasons a great time to do it. And then you can create your own rules and you can create your own culture. And, you know, one of the things I like to say is you might do a lot better than you would at someone else's company. And economic power is social power and social power is political power. And that's how we change the world. So, you know, I guess that's what I'd say. Speak up. If you can't change it, go create your own company and best life. Yeah. Well, riding that optimism, that might be a nice point to to draw this to a close. But I got to say, Liz, it has been an absolute pleasure. I can't believe we're already drawing to the end of this conversation. It feels like we just got started here. But thanks so much for all of your insights. They've been wonderful. And I know listeners are absolutely going to love them. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. I've loved talking to you. This has been so much fun. Now, for those interested in learning more about Liz and her work, you can find her at the Elizabeth Elting Foundation. You can find her on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, Also, her regular Forbes columns. And I mean, of course, you can grab a copy of her book, Dream Big and Win, Translating Passion into Purpose and Creating a Billion Dollar Business. And for reference, all this information, including the links, will be in the show notes. And also too, I mean, if you like today's show, please be sure to tell a friend and share. To show further support, you can rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcasts. And lastly, head on over to YouTube. As I mentioned off the top, I do have a channel over there where you can check out video highlights of the conversation. And finally, don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.